Grace to you and peace from the God who is our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We consider together the first six verses of our gospel lesson from Matthew chapter 3. Tell your brother you're sorry. Or tell your sister you're sorry. Those words are often spoken by Christian parents. What's happened is say that I've done something to hurt my brother and cause him to cry. And mom or dad comes to investigate the, the noise and they identify pretty quickly that I was the cause of those tears. And so they say, Tell your brother you're sorry. Now, at that point, we may still be feeling kind of satisfied at finally settling an irritation that's built up over days. Or we may be inclined to offer excuses and rationalizations and reasons like he started at first. But let's say we jump quite quickly simply to, I'm sorry. What comes next? But you don't look sorry. You don't sound sorry. Tell your brother you're sorry. And you try again, or maybe you try again and again and again after that, and with each effort, each failure, the consequence gets heavier. I'm pretty sure the thought struck me, maybe it struck you. Life would be a whole lot easier if I could just look sorry and sound sorry the first time around. So what do you do? Go into the bathroom, lock the, do lock the door, and practice in front of the mirror. In theory, it's a pretty simple thing to do, to say, I'm sorry, but you've got to have the right tone of voice, have to have the right expression on your face, maybe the right lowering of the head, the right look in your eyes. And, and so you may work at it to sound sorry, to look sorry, as you've been told to do. Now, I hope you recognize that all of this has something to do with our understanding about repentance, about what it means to be repentant. The more time and attention we would spend on the surface trying to look sorry and sound sorry, the less likely it is that we'll see the actual connection between those tears and ourself as the one who, who caused those tears. The focus may end up being in entirely the wrong, wrong direction. And this can also then lead us into a very dangerous sort of trap because it's not just a mom or a dad who can say, you don't sound sorry. 
But there is this voice that asks when, you know, we did that thing we said we were sorry about, and now three days later, and I've done it four more times. Am I really sorry? And if we find ourselves directed to the thought, well, when I do something wrong, then I have to be sorry enough, we'll find ourselves in a position where we can never say so for sure. We've fallen into a, a trap that's called measured repentance. And it's not just, am I sorry enough, but it can also be, do I trust enough? And when we look within, there's always going to be evidence that raises serious questions about that. It's not an unusual thing for Christians to end up being led to think or, or taught to think that sorrow over sin and faith in forgiveness, those are really our part of the bargain. If you show God that you're sorry, then he'll give you forgiveness. If, if you trust him enough, then you'll have love and salvation. It leads to a failure to really understand where sorrow over sin truly comes from and of what faith in forgiveness has as its source. In the Lutheran Church, we are used to repeatedly calling the law a mirror. The mirror of the law, what does it do? Well, it doesn't show us how to look pretty. It doesn't help us change ourselves to look right. It shows us what we look like to God. And to recognize that, that brings sorrow. It brings terror. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in his second epistle, after he had rebuked them for their approval of a sexual sin that even the Gentiles, the outsiders, wouldn't sin, he talks twice about them being sorry. And it just sounds like he's talking about something in the past, but the verb there is passive. They were grieved by their sin. My parents fairly quickly moved on from spanking to something a bit different. I can remember my dad saying, go to your room and think about what you did to your brother. I would rather have gotten a spanking and gotten on with life. But that's really where sorrow over sin comes from. It's looking at that sin and recognizing what it says to God and what it has done to someone else. To think that sorrow over sin is something that we produce by our spiritual willpower just is really completely turned upside down. It would be like going to a doctor with this nagging cough. Not all that bad, but it just isn't going away. And you're expecting when the results come back to get a prescription for an antibiotic or something else. The doctor, however, shows you the x-ray that he took and points out here, here, and here where there are spots of cancer in the lung and where there are also spots where it's spread beyond the lining of the lung into other organs. 
Now tell me at that point, what would you say to yourself? Would you say, I think I need to be sorry about this? That's pretty dumb, right? You wouldn't have to try to be sorry. You would be sorry. You would be grieved by that news. And it's similar to a spiritual sort of thing. The only way to escape that kind of diagnosis is to say, no, that can't be right. I feel a lot better than, than what you're describing. That can't be right. Maybe you're misreading it. Or maybe that's not even an x-ray of, of my body. We can try to escape the sorrow by denying the message. But that simply will not work when it comes to the guilt of our sin. The prophet Jeremiah delivered that kind of message to the children of Israel. The Lord spoke through him to say, your wound is incurable, your injury beyond healing. Our problem isn't that we're sick and that we need to eat well and rest well and, and we'll get better. The problem is that, that we are dead. We've earned the wages of sin and we cannot un earn them. And so we have that abiding reason for sorrow. But how does forgiveness work? John proclaims, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The, the king has come near. What kind of news for us is that it would seem like it can't go beyond the thought of he knows everything he knows your rebellion your my will be done my kingdom come sort of attitude of wanting to do things your way he knows all that and it might seem that there's nothing but fearful judgment that would come with that king drawing near but there is this thing called the good news of the kingdom, which isn't just saying God is in charge and if you let him be in charge, everything will be fine. No, the good news of the kingdom is how the gospel shows us how this king rules. Willing to set aside his glory and majesty to die for us. And when he forgives, it is something solid. He says to you, I know what you've done. But I will not let it stand between you and me. The gospel proclaims to us things that are accomplished fact. Just as the law reveals reasons for me to mourn and be sad and to grieve at what I've said and thought and done, the gospel sets before us what God has done for us in Christ. As a kid, I thought of John the Baptist as simply this angry, scary, strange-looking man. After all, his clothes were made of camel's fur, belt around his waist, eating honey, well, that's okay. But locusts with wild honey, 
Just kind of a scary guy with a frightening message. But you kind of wonder, why would people walk for miles and miles out into the wilderness just to be yelled at, just to be confronted? John was not simply a preacher of law and judgment. He was the promised forerunner of the Savior. He's the one, we're told, was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling, In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. That comes from Isaiah chapter 40, which begins the second major division of Isaiah's book of prophecy. That's the chapter that begins with the words comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Let them know that their sins have been paid for. Chapter 40 points to the ministry of John the Baptist. When you hear the song, Go Tell It on a Mountain, that's about John the Baptist originally, from Isaiah chapter 40. He's the one who is instructed to go up on a high mountain so he can lift up his voice and there won't be barriers in the way. His voice will go out. And he's instructed there in Isaiah 40 to proclaim good news. And this is how that news is spoken. Listen carefully to see what is the news that he goes and tells. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, and here comes the message. Listen carefully. Here is your God. There's more to it, but just think about that. Here is your God that says something to us who have given the, the one true God away, wanting to be free from him to do things our way and finding ourselves with no way to buy him back. But the gospel says, here is your God. That Savior born in the city of David is a Savior born to you. God has given himself to you in the person and the work of his Son. What John is to say is, here is your God. Now let's literally look or behold. It's John saying, hey, do you see what I see? Our God is here. And he has more to say about that God. Again, he says, look, see, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, and once again, it's look. Do you see what I see? His reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. And here's the sweetest part of all this. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. John saw that Savior. He wanted other people to see that Savior. What are the most well-known words of John the Baptist? They're words to a couple of his disciples. 
John 1, 29, he says, look, behold. Do you see what I see? Look, the lamb that God has provided to take away the sin of the world. The gospel doesn't point you to, to yourself to examine and study, do I trust and do I trust enough? It points to the Savior. God has provided a sacrificial lamb who has taken away your sin. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, not counting the world's sins against them, forgiving the world's sins. The gospel proclaims to you that God has forgiven all your sins, that he forgave all sins when Christ died on the cross and demonstrated that to the world when Christ was raised from the dead. The gospel is not a good possibility, not the proposal of a good deal or bargain. It is good news, a proclamation of what has happened. Now, so many Christian churches preach a gospel that is conditional, thoroughly conditional. This will be true if you do your part. Maybe this comparison will, will help you. Maybe it'll take a little bit of thought or reflection. Is the gospel we proclaim less true than the law we proclaim? The, gospel, the law we proclaim says, you are guilty before God. You have rebelled against that, that king in thought and word and action. You are guilty. That's true whether you believe it or not. And yet, still obviously, it matters eternally that you believe that word of judgment. The gospel's proclamation is that God forgave all sins for, for Jesus' sake. That message is true whether I believe it or not. It's true before I believe it. And yet, obviously, it matters eternally that I take God at his word. Recognize that tells us then it's not the job of my faith to move God or make God forgive me. Faith doesn't make that. Faith takes hold of a forgiveness that is there. Consider maybe an extreme sort of example of forgiveness among people. Maybe you could imagine doing something that would hurt me deeply, cause me to turn and walk away. That I would come back again and I would say to you, I forgive you. Okay, I've said that. If you don't believe me, does that mean I haven't forgiven you? No, I've forgiven you, but what it means is that you don't enjoy that forgiveness. God has already forgiven all your sins in Christ. That good news is the power that explains faith. Christ was exalted 
we're told to give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. That repentance and forgiveness are his gifts and his doing. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There was forgiveness at the heart of John's message. And when we hear about baptism in verse 6, it's helpful to remember that contrary to what many think and say, baptism is not something we do. It's not our act. It's God's act. Remember that Christ, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth belongs, says, go teach and baptize. So when any Christian baptizes, they're not speaking for themselves, they're speaking for Christ, who acts, who declares, who says, I want you to be part of my family forever. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. One thing that we maybe don't notice again with that sort of work, they were baptized, isn't just saying this happened in the past. It's a passive verb. We don't baptize ourselves. We are baptized. Somebody applies the word and water to us. Just as when Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 6, you were buried with Christ through baptism into death. We don't bury ourselves. And we couldn't connect ourselves to that salvation history. We can't reach across the miles and back across the centuries to connect ourselves with that. But God connected you to salvation history through baptism so that Christ's death is your death, so that his resurrection to life is your resurrection to life. That's how baptism has the power to save. The great danger of making faces in the mirror of the law is that it, it points us in the wrong direction. It gets us looking simply to ourselves. When it leads us to wonder about our salvation, wonder if we're sorry enough, wonder if we are trusting enough, we'll find ourselves pointed to our efforts to feel the right way as to sadness and to faith. And that pulls our attention away from the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. This doesn't change. The news that the law delivers to, about me gives me reason for sadness. But what it proclaims about Christ, the Savior God sent for me, is good news now and forever. Amen.